Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hi, I'm Heather Madden, Director of Advocacy Projects at the Independent Women's Voice and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. I'm joined by Hadley Heath Manny, Senior Policy Analyst and Director of Health Policy at the Independent Women's Forum. We're going to be discussing Hadley's recent article in the Washington Examiner, which explains how Obamacare's most popular provisions are the ones undermining it. Hadley, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Heather. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Hadley, uh, you and I both know that you know more people say they've been hurt by the Affordable Care Act than have been helped by it. And we also know that most Americans want to see um, this law repealed. But as you discuss in your article, although Obamacare is unpopular with the public, um, and it has been since the very beginning, there are provisions in the Affordable Care Act that are popular. So first, can you tell us a little bit about what those are and why you think the public tends to support these provisions? Right. Well, so much of the discussion about health reform, whether it's Obamacare or uh, potential replacements for Obamacare, centers around uh, members of the American public who have pre-existing health conditions. And so uh, the one piece of Obamacare that has maintained just incredible popularity is this requirement that insurance companies offer plans to people with pre-existing conditions. And really, it's it's two rules together that make the law what it is with regard to pre-existing conditions, but the American public basically knows it as this one provision about pre-existing health conditions, and 92% of people favor that rule, uh, according to recent research from the American Action Network. And I say it's two rules because, you know, it's important for people to understand the ACA requires something called guaranteed issue, that is the requirement that insurance companies offer everyone an insurance policy, regardless of their health status or their health history. And the second piece is called community rating, which is the requirement that health insurance companies offer you a price um, that is blind to your health status and your health history and to various other health uh, related factors as well. So uh, there's community rating with respect to gender in the law. That means that they can't take into account if you're a man or woman when they're pricing your health insurance plan. So guaranteed issue and community rating together are sort of uh, Obamacare's recipe for how to deal with pre-existing conditions. And they mean that uh, everybody who has a pre-existing health condition can go into the individual insurance market um, to an insurance company that's offering plans, and they can buy a plan at a, at a rate that's similar to someone who does not have the condition. That's really interesting. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how our healthcare system worked before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Um, you know, specifically, you know, what health insurance looked like during that time for individuals with pre-existing conditions. Well, there's a lot of different uh, things that were happening because, you know, before the Affordable Care Act, um, insurance regulation was really the purview of state government. So a lot of states had, uh, in fact, every state, as far as I know, had a state insurance commission and the insurance commissioners regulated, you know, what um, constituted health insurance um, that was compliant with state law and what types of plans insurance companies could sell and how people could buy them and um 
state insurance commissions also made rules about pre-existing conditions. And so um, there's, it's really important for people to understand um, there's almost two different situations that people with pre-existing health conditions could be in. So number one, you could be someone with a pre-existing health condition who had maintained continuous coverage. And um, that's an important distinction between someone who is uninsured or has a coverage gap and who also has a pre-existing health condition. And so uh, in some states, if you had continuous coverage, meaning you had maintained your health insurance um, for whatever period of time. Um, there were some states that had rules that said your health insurance company couldn't dump you just because they found out, um, just because you developed a, a pre-existing health condition. And um, that uh, is really a, a better kind of mandate than the one in the Affordable Care Act because it rewards people for um, getting health insurance when they're healthy. Um, and it's sort of... Um, discourages people from opportunistic behavior. So you could be a healthy person who says, ah, I don't need health insurance. And then when you develop a pre-existing condition or you develop some kind of expensive health condition, you say, well, now I'd really like to have health insurance so I could get someone, you know, help me pay for, for all these bills. And then you buy into the system. And that kind of opportunism is, um, it's become a problem under the Affordable Care Act um, because, of course, the law has no requirement for maintaining continuous coverage. Um, another thing that some states did, uh, 35 states, in fact, before the ACA, is that they had a state-based high-risk pool. And these uh, state-based high-risk pools are kind of um, coming back in vogue because many of the Republican plans um, have some federal funding for states to establish and to run these um, state-based high-risk pools again. And essentially, this is um, a targeted solution for people who um, don't have uh, some other type of health insurance or some other way to obtain health, health insurance. You could go to your state-based high-risk pool um, and buy a policy there. Um, and these, these policies would be subsidized with taxpayer dollars, um, but they were subsidized because uh, otherwise premiums for people with very expensive health conditions reflect the fact that they have very high medical claims and the premiums are very high. And so um, that's a different way to go about um, you know, addressing the pre-existing conditions um, problem in our healthcare system, uh, instead of sort of mandating that health insurance companies treat people with pre-existing conditions the same as they treat healthy customers. Right, and you know, you're getting at the next thing I want to talk about, which is, you know, despite the popularity of the pre-existing health condition rule under Obamacare. Um, you write that it's a big reason why Obamacare is so broken, um, you know, and, and so often it seems like even when a law or a, a regulation is well intended, it, it backfires on the very people that it aims to help. So can you talk a little bit more about why this makes Obamacare unworkable? Right. Well, I think we, we do need to have like a big um, nationwide you know, for lack of a better term, like a come to Jesus meeting about what health insurance <laughs> really is and what we want it to be. Um, because under the ACA, we've really stopped treating health insurance like insurance. And um, it's really become a payment mechanism or a, a pooling of resources um, so that people don't have to pay all of their health care costs uh, individually and all at one time. And so uh, we need to decide if we want health insurance to be like insurance, or if we simply want to use it the way we have been using it under the ACA, which is a, a very convoluted pipeline for, for paying for things. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because if you look at any other type of insurance, um, whether it's property and casualty or auto insurance or life insurance, um, we buy these 
these policies to protect us against something, you know, and in healthcare, healthcare or health insurance isn't really even a good term because there's no way we can prevent ourselves from becoming sick. If we're going to become sick, we're going to become sick. So we're really, what we're doing with health insurance is we are insuring our assets. We're insuring what's in our bank account against some kind of catastrophic um, series of events that lands us with a lot of high health bills. And uh, it doesn't really make sense for someone who doesn't even have the money to afford rent or the money to afford their grocery bill to have to pay for health insurance because they really have no assets to protect in the first place. Um, and yet the ACA sort of treats um, health insurance as if it's uh, a necessity for every person. That's why there's um, a mandate. But the mandate is really also intended to balance against um, these provisions that we're talking about um, with regard to guaranteed issue, community rating, and, and how they affect people with pre-existing conditions. So you ask, how do these provisions make the law unworkable? We know under the ACA that some health insurance plans have decided to stop selling in the exchanges. And in 40% of counties in this country, people who buy insurance on the exchanges only have one insurance company that they can buy from. So that's not a lot of consumer choice. Wow. That's sort of where we're at today. And we're there um, because the health insurance companies aren't doing well in the exchanges. And they're, they're actually suffering pretty grave financial losses. And they're suffering financial losses because the pool of people who have sought insurance in these exchanges are much less healthy. They're older and sicker than um, what health insurance companies were hoping for, much uh, worse than expected. And the reason why, of course, is because if you're a healthy person, um, you don't want to have to pay the same premium as someone who has a pre-existing health condition. Um, to you, your health insurance isn't providing the same service. You know, if it were truly insurance, that would be different. But under the ACA, you're paying a premium that does not reflect your risk. You're paying a premium that's much higher um, than what a true reflection of your risk would be if you're young and healthy. And um, so that is a discouragement, a strong discouragement and a disincentive uh, for young, healthy people to buy into Obamacare. And so the people who are buying in are um, people who are older and sicker. And, and some people in the world of health insurance might refer to this as a death spiral. I'm not sure if it's, you know, technically as bad as a death spiral, but it's certainly created some adverse selection and it's led to a much um, sicker and more expensive pool. And that's why we're seeing premiums increase by 25% this year. Yeah. And, you know, I remember proponents of the law saying, oh, well, you know, market rates will um, will stabilize, you know, after a few years. But it's been, you know, seven years since the law was passed. And, you know, based on what you've said about all of this and all of the broken promises that we've, you know, witnessed since the ACA was enacted, I think it's, you know, safe to say that this isn't happening at all. But instead, as time goes on, things seem to get worse and worse. Um, but as you talked about, the Affordable Care Act tried to address this uh, flaw, you know, the, uh, you know, the fact that you can't have this requirement that insurance companies accept all customers without uh, mandating that all people buy in. Um, they tried to address this with the individual mandate. Um, and, I, and I wanted to ask you, you know, why don't you think that the individual mandate has worked as the, the proponents intended it to? Well, that's a good question. So that, that is the, um, that's supposed to balance the ACA. You know, the ACA requires insurance companies to offer uh, plans to everyone and at pretty similar rates. And so the creators understood that this would be a great deal um, for 
some people, you know, 5% of the people in the U.S. are uh, unfortunately have to rack up 50% of the healthcare costs because um, that's just the way our, our population is. It's not the same people every year, but certainly if you end up with a really big uh, hospital bill this year, you could be in the 5%. And so um, that uh, inequity um, creates a real issue for people who are in the 95% of people who aren't racking up big health bills this year. And they think, well, why should I buy insurance if it's not a good deal for me? Well, the ACA has the individual mandate and the associated penalty, um, which is supposed to change the cost-benefit analysis for those people. They're supposed to say, hmm, I could buy health insurance and have that financial protection, even though the health insurance is not a good deal for me and it's, it's more expensive than what I want to pay for. But if I go without health insurance, well, I'm also going to have to pay a penalty to the government. Um, but the difference is, of course, that the plans available under the ACA um, – Many of them cost hundreds of dollars each month. Even if you're just paying for one individual person, you could be facing three or four hundred dollar a month premiums. Even if you're a young, healthy person, and uh, the average penalty that people paid last year, six and a half million people in the U.S. paid a penalty for going without health insurance, and the average that they paid was four hundred and seventy dollars. And so, if you're looking at this in terms of your cost, your benefit, and your risk. It's likely that a lot of the people in that 6.5 million said, you know what, this health insurance is a bad deal for me. I don't want to pay for it. I can pay 470 bucks or something in that ballpark instead of paying $400 every month for health insurance that I may not even use. And so that's how a lot of those people are, are making that calculation. That's why we end up with, uh, in fact, studies have shown that the uninsured under Obamacare are healthier and that's not because the people without insurance suddenly started going to exercise classes once a week. That's because the face of the uninsured population has changed. It's because people who are young and healthy are saying, this is not a good deal for me and I'd rather pay the penalty. And um, to put you know, policy wonk words on it, the penalty didn't have enough teeth. It wasn't strong enough to force people, to really force people to buy health insurance plans. Not that I support that. I don't believe the government should be in the business of coercing people to buy anything they don't want to buy. Um, but the, the, the ACA approach here hasn't worked. Absolutely. You know, and it, it seems so, you know, when we look ahead, the biggest challenge that we're all facing is how to best, um, you know, help those who need it the most. And in your piece, you do offer a solution for this. And you talked a little bit about this earlier um, with the high risk, with the state-based high risk pools. But can you tell us a little bit more about that and, you know, how we might be able to improve our healthcare system and make it more affordable for everyone, um, you know, especially those who, who need a safety net? Right. And I think, you know, the first step to solving any problem is sort of identifying what that problem is. And so the, the number of people in the United States who have a pre-existing health condition, I mean, really a, an expensive condition that is uh, relevant to this discussion about whether or not they can obtain health insurance is actually much smaller than some of the um, figures that are often cited by Obamacare proponents. And so you'll hear uh, people say things like 133 million Americans have a pre-existing health condition, you know, and some of those right. figures depend on um, citing, uh, you know, for example, the just several, um, you know, maybe up to 50 million, uh, my guess, people who have uh, high blood pressure might be included in this statistic. And so that's not really a sure. pre-existing health condition, you know, not, not, um, in a way that's relevant to this discussion. The number of people who actually um, have pre-existing conditions that make it 
um, impossible for them to find uh, health insurance policy sort of in the in the world without Obamacare is probably closer to half a million people in this country. And that's a pretty generous estimate anyway. Um, and I say that um, and I want to emphasize that the size of this population does not mean that those individuals are not important. And it doesn't mean that we don't you know, that we're not a compassionate society. We don't want to care for those people. We absolutely do. But we do, um, we ought to be careful to have more targeted solutions to some of these problems. That was the the mistake that the ACA make was, uh, made, uh, among several other mistakes, was making sweeping changes um, to our entire health insurance system um, that really, maybe the changes just needed to be more targeted and, and, and more um, cra- crafted more specifically for the problems that existed and for the populations that needed help. And so when we look at this half a million people, again, you know, we have to consider um, why are they there? Well, we've got a big uh, employer-based health insurance system in the United States where a lot of people with pre-existing conditions can get um, coverage through their employer. I don't really support that system. I don't think that we should have a system that's so tied uh, to um, employers, that's so employer-centric, um, because people need to change jobs sometimes, you know? And, and gosh, what if you were married to a guy who had employer-sponsored health insurance, but if he was abusing you or something, you needed to get a divorce, you don't want to lose your health insurance too, just because you don't want to feel like you have to stay trapped in this marriage or this job just because uh, you have a pre-existing health condition. So I, I think it's absolutely an issue um, that deserves um, our attention. And I did mention the state-based high-risk pools earlier. And this is really uh, the key to understanding the solution is is understanding what I said before about you know how there's... Um, there's a, a smaller number of people than the administration would have us believe that find themselves in this position. And so we ought to have provisions for those people. Um, they, they can go to a state-based high-risk pool and find a subsidized premium so that they can get coverage for their very expensive uh, health condition. You know, we don't want anybody who has cancer or some other um, very serious illness and where they're paying you know, they could potentially face hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bills simply for their monthly medications. Uh, we don't want those people to um, have to go into bankruptcy or to face other um, dire consequences as a result of a condition that's frankly outside of their control. And a lot of times the situation they find themselves in um, because of their um insurance is outside of their control. And so having a, a place for those people to go um, and f- to find an insurance policy, I think is, is critical. And I think it's going to be a critical part of replacing the Affordable Care Act. Because again, as we said at the outset of this podcast, the provision in the ACA uh, related to pre-existing conditions has 92% of the American public support because we're a very caring country. And, and, and I believe that people who support this rule have um, very um, good intentions. They want to see their neighbors and their friends and their family members with pre-existing health conditions have some kind of solution. They want them to, you know, not feel like they're going to be left in a lurch if the ACA is repealed. Um, So that's why I think we need um, to be talking about state-based high-risk pools. We also need to talk about uh, you know, one day in the future, it could be possible for people to buy uh, something called health status insurance, where they're essentially insuring against a bad medical diagnosis. And so I could buy my regular health insurance, and then I could buy a rider to that policy, which is a health status insurance plan, where I would receive a big lump sum payment um, if I get diagnosed with something, and that would help pay for the increase in my premiums that I might face if I develop that condition. That's an idea that's 
uh, pretty fascinating and, and maybe on the horizon uh, in terms of a market innovation for health insurance. Um, but in the meantime, you know, I, I think state-based high-risk pools are a fine way to address this. They're much more targeted. They have a, a much smaller role for government um, than the sweeping changes that the ACA put into place. That's really interesting, Hadley. You've, you've given us a lot to to think about there. Um, you know, this leads me to my final question, though. Um, you know, as you know, Congress has a, a really big opportunity right now. It's controlled by the GOP, um, and, and repeal is in reach for the first time since the ACA was passed. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think policymakers can do to address these problems in the future that we've talked about? Well, you know, the the downside of the Obamacare approach to pre-existing health conditions is that it's resulted in a really dysfunctional individual insurance market. And um, I want the individual market for health insurance to be very strong and vibrant and competitive. And, um, you know, the reason being, I don't want people to be, you know, feel locked into a job or any other, um, you know, I don't want people to feel like they can't move from state to state. I don't want people to feel like any of their freedom is restricted um, because of their health insurance policy. And I think if we're going to um, address this issue, not just for people who have pre-existing health conditions, but for healthy people and for people who don't have on-the-job health insurance benefits, then I think a, a big key to replacing the ACA will be to um, provide for a system where people can use some kind of universal tax deduction or tax credit um, to buy the health insurance policy that suits their needs, their family needs, their family's budgetary needs, um, and allow health insurance companies, force health insurance companies really to compete for our business so that the patient is at the center of the healthcare system. Because what we have right now is a very distorted market for health insurance where some people have on-the-job benefits that are excluded from taxation, and then other people are sort of uh, out on their own and having to use those post-tax dollars in a very small subset of, of the marketplace. And so um, I think it's important to try to equalize that tax treatment between employer-sponsored insurance and individual insurance. And I think it's also important to, to keep some role for a government safety net in place so that no one falls through the cracks because we're a very big and, and very compassionate and very prosperous country where we can um, afford to make provisions so that no one is you know left um, without um, the health care that they very desperately need. So we don't want to see any of our Americans in a desperate situation, but we can make changes to the overall marketplace so that if you're a young, healthy person and you want to buy a very basic health insurance policy, you ought to be free to do that. And by the same token, if you're an older person with very expensive medical conditions, you have access to, to options as well. Absolutely. You know, I think that's exactly why we need to avoid, you know, a one-size it's all a top-down approach and then in, in our health reform efforts going forward. And instead, you know, as you talk about, look for ways to, um, you know, increase competition so everyone can have more affordable options to choose from when, when it comes time to shop for health insurance. Okay, this has been another edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. Thank you, Hadley, for being our guest. To our listeners, if you are interested in learning more about these unsuccessful Obamacare provisions that we've discussed here today, and what we can do to address these issues going forward, please check out Hadley's article at IWF.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by IWF.org for similar content.